Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. The global use of cannabinoids for both recreational and medicinal purposes is accelerating at a remarkable pace. By 2026, the cannabinoid market capitalization is predicted to be approximately $97 billion in U.S. currency, which will far surpass that of the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. There's quite a bit of political, professional, and cultural debate around the impact cannabinoids, good or bad, have on health and well-being of our society. As I wrote in an editorial last year, when you mix money, passion, hope, science, patience, pain, suffering, and advocacy, and politics, a lot can go wrong. So with that, today we're joined by two distinguished guests. Uh, One is Dr. Calvin Dieppe, who is a resident, and uh, Dr. Kareem Latha, uh, Dr. Kareem Latha is a clinician scientist and staff anesthesiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in the University of Toronto. Dr. Latha received his medical degree from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He then completed his anesthesia training at the Massachusetts General Hospital and, and obtained a master's degree in clinical epidemiology from the Harvard School of Public Health. His program of research uses mixed methodologies to, to obtain a multifaceted view of pain in recovery after surgery, including retrospective analyses of administrative databases, prospective observational studies, and multi-center randomized controlled trials. Dr. Diep is a second-year resident in the Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine at the University of Toronto. He is also enrolled in the Clinician Investigator Program and will be starting his graduate studies with the Institute of Health Policy Management at the University of Toronto this July. Calvin's research interests lie in using clinical epidemiological methods to study patient-centered outcomes in the perioperative period, such as pain and disability, as well as opioid and cannabinoid use patterns at the population level. So both of you, Kareem and Calvin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. All right. So last year, Dr. Diep was the lead author in a population-based observational study evaluating the relationships between cannabinoid use and sleep patterns among adult Americans. The study used observational data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, otherwise known as NHANES, and examined whether or not recent use of cannabinoids impacted on the incidence of either too little sleep or too much sleep. Okay, to start things off, uh, and I guess we'll go with Kareem, uh, can you tell us a little bit a bit about uh, the background concept of how cannabinoids may impact on sleep? Because a lot of our readers may not uh, be up to, to speed on that topic. Sure. So the way we actually came about this question isn't so much that we had preliminary studies and wanted to do uh, you know, an observational research study. It was actually just from working in our pain clinics with people using cannabis and people coming up to us asking us about cannabis and sleep. And this question kept coming up again and again, and it really prompted us to go and look at the literature. Um, And when we did that, we realized there really wasn't too much there. And so what we had was a situation where a lot of people in our clinics were using cannabis for sleep with mixed results, and we didn't have any good data to really recommend or advise against its use. 
And so that prompted us to actually look at this in kind of a more rigorous scientific fashion. Okay. And so do you think um, that you had uh, a hypothesis going into it in regards to how the drug would impact on sleep? Because you're dealing with patients that are actually using it and you get a sense from them whether it works or it doesn't or what, what some of the side effects might be. So did you, did, you, did you have like a sense of maybe what you would see from a data standpoint uh, before you uh, started looking at uh, NHANES? Sure. So, you know, like the, the thing with anecdotal data or anecdotal evidence is it's always very biased. And so, you know, we were hearing a lot of positive reports from our patients saying that, especially in chronic pain patients, that cannabis didn't necessarily help with their pain, but it helped with their sleep. Um, and that occurred a lot of times when patients were using uh, cannabis products containing both CBD and THC. Um, and so that that kind of drove this hypothesis that maybe there was an association and a beneficial one at that between cannabis and sleep. Did you get a sense uh, from the patients before you even started the study whether or not THC compounds, you know, with the sedative effects were more impactful on, on sleep patterns versus some of the, the CBD products. And, and maybe you could just quickly too also just let the, 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 the listeners know the difference between those two major uh, uh, chemicals. CBD and THC are two of the main compounds in cannabis. And what we often don't appreciate is cannabis actually consists of over 500 chemical compounds. CBD and THC are generally the way we characterize them, but we actually don't know the full extent of what uh, all these chemicals do and how they interact with each other. Typically, we think of THC as a psychoactive component. So that's the one that gives you the quote unquote high of cannabis. CBD, you know, the actual mechanism and its action is still being elucidated, um, but it's a very interesting molecule. And if you Google it, it's basically been purported to be the cure of everything from acne to sleep to pain. Um, and what's interesting is the actual evidence and, and science behind CBD in terms of its clinical applications is a lot less than THC, despite what you read on the internet. What, what do you think, uh, what do you think, Calvin? Is that, do, you, do you agree with that? Yeah, generally, I would agree. Uh, certainly, my clinical experiences aren't... Uh, as as uh, robust as Dr. Letta, as I as, as mentioned, I've just started my residency, but uh, certainly I would agree with the statement that we don't know everything that about cannabis, uh, and certainly the differences between CBD, THC, and other compounds. We've just started to elucidate the the physiologic as well as uh, long term effects of those on our patient populations. Great, and you know, I, I remember when um, when I was at a meeting years ago, getting back to the, the 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 enthusiasm about the potential medicinal effects of of the drug. Uh, I remember someone put up a, a a picture of like the human body, and essentially the the suggestion was was the human condition would be <laughs> would be uh, potentially improved uh, by this uh, by this uh, drug and like every medical ailment was listed uh, on the uh, on the slide but you know it, it's it's super fascinating because so many people are using it and so I think the the, the foundational principle to, to examine this this data is sound so so I'm, I'm super excited that you did and I think that it, this actually leads nicely into the next question I have for both of you and uh, because a lot of people uh, are not familiar with with NHANES 
and uh, and where it comes from and what it is. And and I think you're one of the few that have actually used this data set for anesthetic type research, pain type research. So could you just uh, give the readers and uh, of our journal and the listeners to this podcast a little background uh, on the history of NHANES and, and perhaps maybe its advantages and disadvantages? Certainly. So the NHANES is a survey uh, run by the CDC as well as uh, NCHS, that's the National Center for Health Statistics in the U.S. And this survey is administered in uh, two-year cycles, and they have a complex sampling method and survey weighting that allows ultimately for their data sets and for any analyses that follow to be nationally representative of the uh, U.S. population. The disadvantages uh, of using this data set for research relate primarily to it being survey data. Uh, so it being cross-sectional with no longitudinal follow-up with any of the respondents or cohorts, but also that uh, majority of the questions or the variables that are part of this survey, and, and there are quite a number of different question sets that are involved, but m- most of these will be self-reported uh, as well. Uh, with any sort of survey data, uh, thinking about analyses, we uh, our analyses have to be limited by the, avail- uh, the available data and the types of questions that are asked by the survey set. Uh, and I think it's fair to say, and uh, uh, I could be wrong on this, but uh, uh, so if, if if any of the listeners um, w- uh, want to email me if I uh, if I make a, an error here, please do so. But but it's more than just survey data. Uh, the, 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 these are highly trained question uh, askers, uh, the, and there's also administrative data and and vetting of some of the the responses from the the respondents in ter- in terms of the, the the health records. And I think most people are aware of of the growth charts in the in the U.S. that are used to uh, evaluate what percentile children are in for their weight and height. That data actually came from from NHANES, from actual records. Uh, and there's like an NHANES like truck that goes around each year in pre-COVID, of course, and that would draw blood samples and uh, and get blood pressure measurements and and so on and so forth. So I believe it's it's more than just like you know a survey was like mailed to somebody uh, and they didn't they kind of either did or didn't send it back in kind of a half baked way. I think it's more it's much more robust than that and it's actually been used for major uh, health questions in the U.S. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, there there is a also as you mentioned a, a physical exam component of uh, collecting data, as well as uh, uh, blood markers, uh, measuring people's height and weight. There are other components, physical exam components and objective components to the to the NHANES system and, and survey as well. Yeah, and I think that one of the things people don't realize is so much of what we know about public health and population health comes from these surveys. Um, and it's very fortunate that the government invests this kind of money to collect this rigorous data um, because it allows us as researchers to analyze it and, and do these studies. It's also publicly available. So, again, as we mentioned, Calvin's a resident and, you know, without any large grant or funding, he's able to undertake this kind of research. I'm glad well. I'm glad you brought that up, Kareem, because that's that's one of the reasons why we wanted to highlight this this work in the podcast is because it is an example of how to do research and ask important questions with a with a streamlined budget. And, uh, and, and, and when you say it's publicly available, you, I want to stress that it really, really is publicly available. You literally download the data files 
and you need a little experience, a little bit of help from a statistician to organize it or people that have experience with it. But it's unlike other things that I've heard that are, quote, publicly available that you need basically a Freedom of Information Act to actually get the data. So, uh, I mean, th- this is super available. It's already like written in various codes that, you know, people use in Stata and SAS. And so it's like really, really easy. So so every everybody listening to this, think about using this data source for um uh, you know, other projects. And in fact, what you could do is you could just look at the code book, which describes the variables and you can start figuring out, uh, is there something in that, that code book that would actually be of, of interest, uh, uh, to, to you. So, so this, this is really cool. Um, so I think with, um, with that as a background, um, uh, let's, let's go, um, over a couple, uh, definitions that you use in your research. So before we get into the actual results, uh, if you could just help clarify in your study what actually was your exposure uh, that that is the uh, you know uh, cannabis use and what exactly was was the outcome uh, that you looked at in terms of the sleep disturbances. So as we mentioned earlier, NHANES relies a lot on self-report um, to answer a lot of these questions, and so patients or participants, I should say, were actually asked, "Have you used cannabis recently?" Um, and so. If so, how long ago? And basically what we did is we defined cannabis use as anybody who reported that they actually used cannabis within the past 30 days. Now, you know, there's no hard definition of what defines recent cannabis use. We've done several studies now um, using different data sets, and, and that's kind of what we've come up with to say someone who's using about once a month is a cannabis user. Now, people can argue against that, and we'll get into how we got around that later on, um, but that was basically what we chose as our primary exposure. In terms of outcome, again, it's a little controversial because when you're looking at sleep, there's lots of disagreement in the field of what constitutes problematic sleep. And here, the main variable that we had related to sleep was self-reported nightly sleep duration on an average weeknight or work night. And so what we did is we actually broke it down and categorized it as normal, which we defined as six to nine hours, short, which was less than six hours, or long, greater than nine hours. Okay, and I think that's you know, and I and I and I think that it's it's important to stress uh, for for our listeners that you have to go with the flow in terms of what your data allows you to do, and and so the you know it's it's potential it's potentially. Um, of interest to, 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 to use a different exposure, a different outcome, but you have what you have. So I think, uh, I think you were really creative with, uh, how you, you managed to, to use this data given, given the limitations of how, how the questions were asked. And in terms of the ordinal categories of sleep, um, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, why you, why you chose that and, and what exactly, uh, ordinal categories are? You know, the, the thing is, um, sleep is not, not one of these things where more is better. And I think that was one of the key points that a lot of people who read the paper didn't realize is that it is possible to have too much sleep or too much of a good thing. And so we often think of you know sleep deprivation as problematic and leading to all sorts of health issues, but prolonged sleep also can be an issue and also related potentially to cannabis use as well. And so, you know, one of the issues that we thought about when we were designing the study is if we simply kept it as a continuous variable, meaning just number of hours um, in a straight line, we could potentially miss different types of associations. So um, 
that's really what drove our decision to categorize it, which you know led to some methodologic changes that you don't normally see in your run-of-the-mill observational study. But you know, we felt that it was important that the outcome not be continuous. Because if you think about it, if you have lots of people who are sleeping too long and lots of people who aren't sleeping enough, you average it all together and everybody seems to be sleeping just right. And that's that's a problem that we wanted to avoid. All right. So let's get into the results. Um, so it looks like you had 21,729 adults from the years 2005 to 2018. And it looks like you had 3,132 recent users. That gives you a rate of about 14.4%. Can you summarize the key rates of sleep disturbances for both the non-cannabis and cannabis users? So when we separated out the cohorts uh, between cannabis users or uh, more specifically respondents that had self-reported recent cannabis use, 15.7% of recent cannabis users endorsed short sleep compared to 11.6% of non-cannabis users or non-recent cannabis users. And then with regards to long sleep, 6.5% of cannabis users endorsed long sleep compared with 3.1% of non-cannabis users. And so model building is, is really complicated. And usually, usually model, model, model building starts with uh, examining if the patients in your uh, cohort are different stratified by either the, the exposure and the outcome. And it looks like from your table one that you stratified by your um, uh, exposure, and that's uh, cannabis use. And can you just share with us maybe some of the key takeaways from um, table one in regards to how patients are, are different uh, as a function of, of whether or not they, they use uh, uh, cannabis? Yeah, certainly. So as you mentioned, we first looked at our entire cohort of, of participants, of survey respondents, and stratified them by whether or not they had self-reported using cannabis in the last 30 days. And we did notice that across a number of different variables uh, and domains that the, the two groups, cannabis users and non-cannabis users, were, were different in a number of ways. For instance, people that self-reported cannabis use were more likely to be in the younger age brackets. Uh, they were more likely to be male. They were more likely to have uh, uh, further education beyond high school. They were for instance, more likely to be of lower BMI. They were more likely to smoke cigarettes, engage in heavy alcohol use, uh, as well as have uh, active prescriptions for uh, different medication classes, such as uh, opioids, ben uh, benzodiazepines, um, as well as other sedatives and stimulants. So that's a, that's a really good point. And you're, you're highlighting uh, that the patients are different in their sociodemographics and health variables uh, between uh, cannabis users and non-cannabis users. And so that's why you can't just stop the study there and say, okay, look, our, ca our cannabis users had this sleep pattern and our non-cannabis users had this sleep pattern because the patients are different. So there may be something that's driving those relationships uh, independent from cannabis use, and that's called confounding. And so it's important when you're, you're doing these large population studies or any observational study for that matter to really get to the bottom of confounding. And so you did that. You um, uh, dealt with confounding by building a model to control for some of these variables. Uh, can you uh, highlight uh, your um, analysis when you built your model and, and exactly how you did that model building? 
Sure. So we we use something called a multinomial logistic regression model, um, and basically, you know, some of the readers might be familiar with a logistic regression, which basically takes an outcome that's binary or two categories. The only thing a little more complicated about this model is that we're extending it to have the ability to identify or evaluate a categorical outcome, because in our our case, our outcome had three different levels. In terms of how we chose the variables, you know, one of the things about observational studies is that you don't always get everything you want. And I think, again, the important thing to note is NHANES was not designed to do a study based on cannabis and sleep. It was designed to look at a whole host of factors. And so we're limited by the data in terms of what we can control for. And so what we do is we look at what's available in NHANES, and then we get together as a group and say, what could plausibly be a confounder? Meaning what variables do we have that we think are related to both our exposure, i.e. cannabis use, and our outcome sleep? And we went through the codebook and came up with things. And of course, we do this before we analyze any data to make sure that we're not biasing in any way. So you know, we come up with a plan, we set it out, we decide what we're going to adjust for, and then we put it into a model and get our results. And so in this case, you know, NHANES is actually pretty uh, comprehensive. And so we had lots of different things. And so we could adjust for demographic variables like age, sex, ethnicity, socioeconomic um, covariates that often don't uh, get included in studies like this. So education, um, number of hours worked, um, and then, of course, health um, conditions such as hypertension, diabetes, uh, BMI, smoking, and other um, drug use. So, you know, Z drugs or Z drugs, as you say in the U.S., depending on whether you're in Canada or, or the States, um, and other sedatives as well. And, and we also finally also looked at the impact of year, because as we know, the legislation and, and attitudes towards cannabis are changing over time. And so we also wanted to make sure that we adjusted for that as well. So, you know, there were lots of things in our model to try and try and capture all these different facets that could potentially bias our results. And for, for our listeners, just because we do so much with 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 modeling and adjusting and predicting that I want uh, people to really understand what's happening when you're you're building a model and you're putting in these, quote, co- covariates, these these variables. Basically, the model is trying to assess the relationship between the exposure and the outcome when you hold these variables constant so they can't influence the outcome. So it is living in the world of the theoretical at this point. It's not real data anymore. It's actually making assumptions and predicting out the outcome uh, by, by math. And it's so, so a lot of people uh, have been skeptical of, of observational data because of this. And, and one of the things that we like to see, and this is going to be a good segue into the next question, is certain characteristics of the model that give us more confidence uh, that we're seeing the truth, because that's kind of what we want is the truth. Uh, and, and so that, that uh, table three of yours is really interesting. Uh, and I, I, I was super excited when I first read that because the odds ratios that you that you demonstrate there actually uh, reflect what we call a biological gradient, meaning that more of the exposure, in this case, cannabis use, results in a stronger effect on the outcome, which is sleep disturbance. And one of my 
uh, favorite biostatistical discussions is how one knows that the relationship between an exposure and outcome is, is, is more likely to be causal versus just a spurious association. And there's something called the Hill Criteria, which were established years ago by a famous British epidemiologist who actually discovered the causal relationship between smoking and lung cancer cancer among physicians. And, and there was a clear biological gradient uh, in that data. And, and hence, that's one of the strong uh, criteria uh, to, that, that, that leaves the reader more uh, 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 confident that the, the results are, are, are significant and meaningful. So they're, they're super exciting, those biological gradients. Um, do you want to comment, either one of you, about table three and that gradient? Yeah, so we were really excited uh, as well when we uh, had performed one of our sensitivity analyses to look at the uh, potential impact of uh, higher doses or exposure to cannabis, as you had mentioned. So in our adjusted analytic mo- uh, anal- analytical model, the respondents who had endorsed heavier cannabis use, and we had defined this as using cannabis on greater than 20 of the past 30 days, So these respondents who endorsed heavy cannabis use were more likely than the non-users to have short sleep uh, as well as long sleep. And even compared to the moderate users, there appeared to be a greater effect sizes, which is represented by our odds ratios. And this is exciting uh, because as far as we know, and as far as I had dug through the literature, this is the first time such a dose response or a biological gradient had been observed in a large study, uh, even if this is just cross-sectional and observational data. I'm also really interested to get your take on this, on, on the, the bimodal results that you, you found in terms of short and long duration sleep. Bimodal distributions are also super, super exciting. Um, it, was this something that you expected to see? And, and I guess the, the question that a lot of readers will, will have and listeners will have is whether or not the, the health implications of, of your findings are 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 serious at all like like will will people who have this sleep disturbance have problems from a health standpoint it's it's tough to say as of right now just to to take it back a little bit when we had designed this uh or sorry defined our outcomes uh to normal sleep uh as well as short sleep and long sleep we weren't exactly expecting to to see a bimodal relationship uh with recent cannabis use or, or, or cannabis use. But um, it's hard to really talk about the potential implications um, of cannabis and cannabinoids in terms of their health effects, because certainly cannabis or, or any single agent or exposure can't have can't cause both short and long sleep in a single person. And I think that's one of the limitations is that we don't have more granular data related to the for, the forms of cannabis that were used by these respondents, uh, as Kareem had uh, mentioned earlier, cannabis is a very heterogeneous group of agents that uh, is composed that has different chemical compositions, whether it's different CBD to THC ratios or whatever formulation it might be, and that is one of the major limitations of our studies that we don't have more granular data related to the forms of cannabis use as well as more granular data related to sleep outcomes. Yeah, and I think that's one of the the challenges of epidemiological studies is we really have data on populations and we can make 
comments at the population level, but it doesn't really tell you much about the individual in front of you when you're when you're taking care of patients. And I think that's one of the great tensions in research is how do you extrapolate this data that we have at the population level to the person who's presenting in your clinic and asking you about cannabis and sleep. Um, and so, you know, I think for some people it, it may harm them, but for others, there may be a benefit. And then fortunately, the data we have doesn't allow us to discern which one is which at this point. Right. But I think the important point too, is that it's a building block you're finding. So we we now know there's some sort of signal, there's a biological gradient, and we would really need to get granular data on dosage. And that's the problem with cannabinoid in, pres- in the way it's prescribed, especially in the United States through through these dispensaries. It's not really easy to to kind of track what people are actually getting in, ter- getting in terms of milligram dosing of the various uh, compounds. So it would be hard to then kind of tease out uh, dose uh, and and, um, and and the impact on, on sleep. Yeah. So, you know, that's a great point. And I think even worse is the fact, you know, there was a study in JAMA published a couple of years ago that looked at labeling of cannabis compounds and showed that even if someone who thought they were taking THC, oftentimes there was no THC present in what they were taking or CBD. Um, So, you know, even if you ask patients what they were taking, you can't be sure of what they're actually getting. Um, And that that further complicates the ability to make any sort of inferences, especially in observational studies retrospectively. That's a great point. Well, I think uh, the next a question I have for uh, you guys is whether or not uh, you see future research in your own areas that will stem from this current project. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a bit cliche to say that, you know, the impact of our work is that further research is needed in this area. Uh, but this time, I think we really mean it. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, this this has uncovered a signal and just given the number of people who have sleep disorders, the number of people who are using cannabis, this is definitely something that has large-scale public health implications. And so from our perspective, we really want to start teasing that apart. Now, you know, whenever we think of evidence, everybody wants, you know, a well-powered RCT. But in this case, you know, again, we don't even know where to start in terms of what that would look like in terms of the intervention and how we would dose it in frequency. And so what we're trying to do is do prospective observational studies and take advantage of the fact that we already have a lot of people who are seeking cannabis out for sleep and other conditions and get them at the time where they get their first cannabis and they get authorized for cannabis, get validated questionnaires on them, and then follow them over time as they're using the cannabis. And what's also advantageous of what we're trying to do in our study that's uh, just underway is actually test the cannabis that they're using. And so we'll know exactly what they're getting in terms of the, the compounds and, and the content in terms of CBD and THC as well. That's that's great. And, you know, and I, I think, I think again, this is a starting point and really the sky's the limit. I, I will say for the record, uh, for the listeners, that RAPM supports both observational studies, prospective cross-sectional, as well as randomized controlled trials. There's no one perfect study. And the more studies of different designs that point to the same answer builds more confidence that we know 
the truth of the various questions. So we applaud you guys for doing this and, uh, and, and, and congratulations to your, to your whole department. We want to thank you for joining us at Rapham Focus Podcast and thanks to all of you who listened. Thank you for listening to the Rapham Focus Podcast. Original music and production are done by Dan Langa. More information can be found at www.danlanga.com. We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rapham Journal, and you can visit us at www.rapham.org.